0: Conversations with Sound Designers is a series of interviews with theatre sound designers about their career paths and the artistic process of theatrical sound design. This first series focuses on UK sound designers, including a wide range of artists, from those at the start of their career to established designers, from content-based shows to musicals, from the regions to West End and Broadway. This episode is kindly supported by the Association of Sound Designers, the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama, and the National Theatre Sound Department. Anna Clock is a composer, musician and sound artist working across all forms including theatre, film, radio and installation, as well as performing, composing music for other musicians and leading their own projects. They are based in London. Welcome, Anna. Hello. When and what was your first connection with sound?
1: So I actually was quite deaf as a child until about the age of four. So it was a kind of physiological deafness, which is not a kind of that uncommon problem, but I just had it particularly badly. So I was about 95% deaf. um, And for various reasons, there was kind of delays in it, uh, getting the surgery I needed until I was about four. Um, And... I have really distinct memories of when I first started hearing sounds, so one that always like sticks with me is, um, so I had these kind of surgeries um, where they kind of insert these things in your ears and they do stuff and then they fall out and then suddenly you can hear. And I remember being, I was actually on a ferry to Ireland um, with my mum and I remember one of my grommets fell out. And um, <laughs> I remember I was standing on the deck with her and I said, what's that sound? And she said, oh, that's the engine of the boat rumbling. And I said, no, I don't mean that sound because I could, I already knew that sound because you can feel that sound mm-hmm. through your feet. Um, and said so the other sound, and she said, oh, that's the water lapping against the side of the boat. Um, And I always think of that, I just, it's just one of those memories, I was obviously a small child that really sticks with me, Um, but I was always really sensitive to sound after that and I think maybe it was just quite um, a present sensation for me where I was asking what was that that, and kind of naming things and yeah, so I think maybe that's some of where it comes from.
0: And so your awareness of sound then grew, as you grew as well, into other forms?
1: Yeah, I um, always loved music, and I think as a teenager, that became like a really massive part of how I spent my time. Um, so I had a band, a um, girl punk band, <laughs> um, <laughs> called Box Effect, and... Um, And I was very much that kid in the corner listening to my Discman. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is, you know, the noughties. So, Um, and my dad was really, my parents both loved music. They didn't play music, but uh, my dad had, when he was younger, he'd made some kind of like experimental kind of tapes and stuff. Um, And he was like really into like a lot of like punk and stuff um, and also the Beatles And then my mum listened to much more like Irish music. Um, And they actually kind of really, really don't agree about any music. They have very different (laughs) taste. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think that was a big, we used to listen to tapes a lot. Like, you know, me and my sister going to sleep would listen to like our Beatles tapes that my, you know, our dad had given us and stuff like that. Um, And it was a really like, a real big like escape escape place I think for me was like putting my headphones on um and just listening to like an album on loop for for hours and hours yeah
0: and what instruments did you learn when you were younger
1: yeah and I uh learned cello so um I my parents kind of not they hadn't had musical training when they were kids and they you know both love music and so they said okay we're all gonna play an instrument um, and I my elder sister played the piano mm. and then I came along and I had this I had kind of a freakishly low voice for a child <laughs> <laughs> and um and I was also very shy I uh, looked at the cello they were like maybe the cello because it's really low and you can kind of hide behind <laughs> it and I say cuddly child you can kind of like cuddle it you can kind of hug it <laughs> um, so I think I think that was you know um, I wouldn't say it was, like, massively my choice, but I just really, really clicked with with it as an instrument and kept on, um, you know, really wanted to keep on doing lessons right up until I left school and stuff. So, yeah, I feel really lucky that I had that opportunity.
0: And did you then go and study with the cello or move into other areas?
1: Yeah, so then I went and I did a music degree. Um, so I did, I studied music and English actually at a university in Dublin. And I was also, I also studied, was doing cello performance at the Academy, the Royal Irish Academy of Music. Um, it's a kind of part-time thing. But my music degree was much more quite a traditional music degree really. Yeah. Um, and in that we did, it wasn't really performance-based, but we did a lot of playing keyboard and Singing, a lot of kind of, which is a lot of like ear training exercise and stuff, mm. but I had to really like try and get my keyboard and singing skills up, um, which I really, really enjoyed actually. Um, and then ended up just really, uh, just got really into trying out different instruments. So, I mean, I've got like a clarinet, I played clarinet in a band at one point. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, a saxophone, I would just buy kind of like cheap instruments from Gumtree and mm. then, you know, try maybe get a mate to show me how to do something or just like this was kind of before YouTube, maybe before I kind of really knew about YouTube. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I would just just figure some stuff out and, you know, like weird wind instruments from uh, different places and tin whistle and stuff like that. Um, and then I ended up teaching, I was teaching music and I kind of would teach cello and a bit of guitar and piano and stuff. Um, so I was constantly trying to kind of basically keep up with. This is me as a student trying to make money. So like constantly trying to kind of keep up with, um, keep up with my pupils. Just trying to keep one, one stage ahead Mm-mm-mm. so I could be a, a decent teacher. Um, I'm not teaching violin, which I don't really play. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think if you, if you know one, if you know one, you can kind of um, figure out other ones. I think a bit easier. Yeah.
0: And were you were you exploring those instruments? in an experimental sense or was it still very much a traditional sense at that point?
1: Yeah, I think I never really clicked with, even though, so when I learned cello, it was very much like classical um, music, you know, learning, hmm. learning it in a classical way, I suppose. I never really clicked at all with that um, culture and that world and that way of playing. I was actually... Like I had, <laughs> I had like the worst, even though I loved playing music, I had like the absolute worst stage fright all through even like school. Like I couldn't, I remember like once playing concert at school and um, I could kind of walk on and drop my book and then knock over the music stand and then start playing. And I remember just, I was crying whilst playing. I was like <laughs> such a state um, of fear and whatever happened. And I think I kind of... And I got to university and people would sometimes go, oh, play us something, play us something. And one day I was like, OK, I'll play something. And I just started kind of improvising and just making something up. Right. And suddenly I was like, oh, I can do this. And everyone was like, oh, that's really cool. It's that piece. And I was like, ha ha, they don't know that <laughs> I just. And then suddenly I was like, oh, wow, that's a way. And somehow like the release from the sheet music yeah, yeah, yeah. really um, kind of set me free and I really was able to find a way back into performing through that. Um, uh, But yeah, I got really interested in um, just different forms of improvising and different ways of using instruments. So I definitely wasn't learning any of these instruments in a kind of like traditional sense, really. I was just trying to see what I could do with them. Mm. Um, And I went on an exchange programme when I was at university to Berkeley California which was a really amazing time and there I kind of I was kind of doing little bits of stuff with improvising and stuff but I there's a really amazing improvised music and kind of like free jazz scene there and I work with this woman called Myra Melford who um is an amazing musician educator artist um but she, she'd been kind of involved with the Chicago art ensemble and that mm. kind of area of jazz and stuff where it was very performative, very theatrical, um, very experimental. Um and I think I really like end up leaning into that a lot. In a way that made me quite unpopular really with a lot of people, um, back in Ireland. But um
0: In what way? Because they were more traditional in their yeah. practice.
1: At that time there was um it was the academy especially there was this real culture and even my degree actually which was very traditional there was certain a lot of people were very very just really really conservative actually mm. and I I ran a helped run this ensemble where I would play students pieces and I was kind of really into trying to run like weird improv exercises that I would think up or like collaborating where there was an art school nearby mm. trying to set up these groups and stuff and I actually really met a lot of um position like people getting really like. upset with me um there was this there's one guy in my class who was the other person who was like really into composing and he had a completely the opposite take to me um was very into like the old greats right. kind of old genius composer men basically and um <laughs> he actually like ended up kicking over my cello like three separate wow. times in anger um <laughs> During when I was running these sessions because <laughs> we were co-running, I mean it was like a nightmare. Like us co-running an ensemble um, with completely different aesthetics. Um, yeah, so it, it was. It was. It, I think especially at that time it was just very conservative. I do think I definitely know some of the people who I knew back then. You know, I've recently got in touch again, and I'm kind of seeing what they're doing, and I'm. It's it's much more interesting in my opinion (laughs) you know people just kind of expanding their definition of music but at that time anyway there was a real kind of um conservatism in the way people were thinking about what music was and and it didn't include improvising definitely
0: So because of that conservatism then do you think is is that what um, uh, pushed you into exploring theater or other art forms a little bit more baby? How did that how did that start to link up in your musical world?
1: Yeah, definitely. I um I was yeah, I was always kind of looking for collaborations outside of just music actually. So, yeah, I was worked with some kind of visual artists, people at art school. Um around this kind of art school choir at one point. So uh, people who weren't musicians but kind of doing things with music and listening mm-hmm. and stuff, um, and I wasn't really very aware of theatre as a thing. <laughs> no. um, I had been to like a little bit of theatre growing up and stuff, um, but I just wasn't really. I kind of wasn't into acting. I just it just wasn't really on my radar mm. as a thing. I hadn't maybe gotten seen the right things. I think, and um, I. What happened was I was there was. Someone, a friend who I'd like made a short film with at some point and it was after I'd left uni actually and I was kind of doing I was just playing with lots of bands and like writing stuff I'd started this kind of um ensemble and I was kind of I was always like quite I'd get frustrated with the music scene because it was um there's certain limits with with music in terms of I felt like people weren't exploring how to stage it in interesting ways mm-hmm. or like how to frame it in a way that might be something they might be political or activist or be telling a story right. um, or exploring an idea. And that was kind of a lot of how I approached things um, or what kind of drove me. And, yeah, so this, this friend had a theatre company and she was like, um, do you want to come do some music for this thing we're doing? And I was like, OK. Um, and it was really cool. They actually had this... Um, They'd taken residence in this, like, abandoned fire station just before it was being turned into, like, studios and stuff. And they had it for a month. And we made this thing. It was very much devising. And I ended up kind of writing some music for some of the actors to play. And then there was all these recordings. It was about the post office, the Irish post office. And, um, yeah, there were the recordings and interviews and stuff. Um, Ended up making some kind of installation-y things and... uh, I just found it such a magical experience because I was like, wow, it's all these people who have really different skills working together towards Mm. something. And it was a very open, very kind of like non-hierarchical space. And, you know, there's people who kind of, you know, their specialism was like set design or acting or directing or writing, whatever. But everyone was kind of doing a bit of everything. Mm -hmm. And I ended up working with them a few times. um, And I was like, wow, this is really magical. You can do so much with this form. Um, and then I was like, yeah, theatre. <laughs> <laughs> and then you were hooked. I was, I was. Um,
0: so how did your taste kind of start and develop through um, through your career to where it is now then in, in terms of theatre?
1: Well, now that I kind of am a bit more aware of what the theatre landscape is, mm. I guess I kind of realise I came to it very much from quite a left field side of like very much devising and kind of live art practices. Um, And uh, I came, I moved back to London and did this course at Central called Advanced Theatre Practice, uh, like an MA one year course, because I was like, I want to learn more about theatre. And Mm. that similarly is very much about kind of finding different ways for people to collaborate, different ways of, you know, ways and places and uh, modes of performing and for live practice to kind of occur. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really where my taste started. And that's the kind of theatre that I got really, like, um, hooked on. Um, And then when I left and I was kind of looking for work and just being like, I need, you know, I really wanted to try and see if I could live on... um, Using my skills in sound mm. and music, and just looking for collaborations, trying to meet people and stuff, and I end up working quite a lot of new writing projects because mm. that at that time, anyway, was kind of where the money was. I mean, I say the money <laughs> as if I was making, Relatively, you know, yeah. yeah. yeah but there, it was where things that were getting funded and getting put on. Yeah, and that still is, I think, you know, uh, a lot of where the British tradition of theatre is is much more about writing and uh plays um and yeah I've really expanded my I guess my taste is really expanded in that in that I um in some ways my heart really feels very much in that devising place where let's start with you know just an idea or you know let's really let it kind of organically come from something that we make together um but I also yeah I really love you know if it's if it's a good play like one project I worked on recently was very much a kind of quite traditional play but it was such a brilliant play and it was staged in a very kind of quite traditional way and that was a really really fulfilling project because it's a really beautiful piece of writing Mm -hmm. um so I'm kind of really open, I think, formally, in terms of in terms of taste, but but a lot of this stuff that I'm really drawn to is, I suppose, I suppose would be probably described as more experimental.
0: Mm. In terms of the forms that you've highlighted there, do you tend to collaborate in the same way, or does the the type of collaboration change uh, much depending on the people you're working with at the moment? How does that tend to work for you?
1: Um, I think it really, really changes, actually. And it's something that I'm always thinking about and have had to put a lot of thought in to how I approach it because of running into difficult situations or situations where I haven't felt fulfilled or whatever. And I think um, I'd say there really is a big difference. I try to really kind of define in my head before I begin a project where I'm coming to it from. So there'll be projects where... Um, like in and this is true in a lot of and this is because of how things are funded and how pay rates work and stuff as well and uh, a lot of the British theatre scene there's a lot of stuff which is very hierarchical mm. um, so if I'm working as a designer or composer um, on, on something like that then I really try to see myself as kind of serving someone else's vision so serving the vision of the writer or director is usually the way it is um, and obviously, I'd be contributing my own, you know, you, as a designer, you get hired for your taste, basically. Mm. So you could not be afraid to kind of <laughs> say, you know, say, say what you think. But also and there's an awareness there of, you know, um, I t- going into it, going, OK, I'm not going to have the last word on decisions here. So I'm mm. going to need to keep a bit more of a distance between myself and that. And then there's maybe a space where it's kind of... A non-hierarchical way of of working, um, which I'd associate more with like devising companies. Um, and still, often there does end up being a bit of a hierarchy. Um, but I think in that space, you know, I'll go into that if I think that I'm really going to gel with those people. I'm really going to want to. I'm really going to be able to find a common ground with them in terms of a vision, even if it means we're going to have loads of fights along the way (laughs) Um, you know I'm all for fighting if it's constructive Mm. um and that's yeah yeah, that's kind of the place I think I came from collab in terms of collaboration and then there's also I also kind of have my own projects where I you know sometimes I go okay actually I was kind of a bit more militant about like collaboration and a lack of hierarchy in spaces um before but now I also recognise that sometimes I actually just want to be in control and actually I want to be the person who has the last say. Yeah. Um, and allowing myself to take that that space as well feels important in terms of um, making sure I'm doing what I need to do artistically and feeling fulfilled. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, it's definitely something I've like learned a huge amount from, just being in these different spaces and kind of... You know, the first time I kind of realized there was this hierarchy and that I wasn't going to have an assay on what, you know, what even, you know, what music and sound was used, Mm. I was like, oh, wow, okay, this is how this works. I was like quite taken aback, really. Um, But I think I found a way into that more where I don't feel so kind of, you know, I feel like I can, well, I try to. With varying degrees of success, I kind of create more of a distance and kind of, and also just work with people who I really respect yeah. and who, who I'm really happy to go, yeah, I'm serving your vision because I think you're a fucking amazing artist. Yeah, yeah. Um, rather than people who, you know, I, I don't necessarily have much common ground with and mm. maybe have different tastes too.
0: And when you say you, with the work that you lead, is that still kind of compositional or is that more performance based now or somewhere in between? Or?
1: Yeah, a real mixture, actually. I think I've really kind of... um... I always think of my work as being very much centred around, like, ways of listening and exploring ways of listening and ways to ask people to listen and voice and what you hear and what you don't hear. Um, But, like, one project recently... uh, I've been writing, so I got this commission and it was kind of the project in my head, it looked like a sound piece, and then actually I realised it was a thing I needed to write. And that's kind of what I've done. It's so like I was like, oh, i written a script, that's weird. <laughs> um <laughs> um I don't like, It's still sound art, I think. Um and then uh there's another collaboration where I've been making this show with an artist uh called Josephine Starr who uh, is an amazing writer and actor. Um, And in that, there's lots of sound stuff I've been doing, also kind of dramaturgy and, like, directing as well. So, yeah. And then another collaboration recently I've ended up performing, which is... um, I love performing music, and I've always done that, but performing in other ways, which... um, I was like, wow, that's really surprising that that's happened. Mm. <laughs> but it's quite freeing in a way because I don't, I don't really have that. I don't really, I've never really had a kind of ambition to be a performer in the sense of being an actor or anything. So I'm, it feels quite freeing because I'm like, I don't really yeah. mind if I'm shit. I, <laughs> what I mind is about doing the thing, doing whatever this project needs for us to be able to make the thing that we need to make. Yeah. Um, so I'm able to be a bit more maybe egoless about it. So yeah, I think. Um, And, you know, and also i am still, you know, I love composing music and uh, sounds and a lot of my interests still are in sounds. There's also things which I'm making which are very much more, you could look at and go, yeah, that's sound, Mm. that's sound art (laughs) or or music, you know. Um, But I really felt um, my practice has kind of expanded quite a lot and it's been quite freeing to go, oh, yeah, there's sometimes... There's a different medium that, uh, something needs, you know, Mm. um...
0: It sounds yeah. from the way that you're talking about it that, you know, a lot of the work that you do, you're interested in because of composition, because of art. How do you um, find it when you need to apply yourself in a kind of slightly more traditional way as a sound designer of turn up, do some sound effects, make a sound system work? Is that something mm. that interests you or something that you kind of try and stay away from or or, com- or collaborate it with somebody else who does those things? Or?
1: Yeah, I... Um... If I'm honest, I often see those things. I mean, I think system design is so interesting and I always wish I had a bit more technical knowledge around it. Mm. But what I end up doing quite a lot is, and I think system design, it's, You know, it's, it's it can be seen as quite a technical thing, but also it's so integral to a live experience and realising what that listening experience is. Um, but because I don't have a massive kind of physical or technical knowledge in that, I end up collaborating quite a lot with, like in-house venue technicians Mm -hmm. and things like that or sound engineers where I'm really happy to kind of do that there was a time where I felt more insecure maybe and would feel like I've got to pretend that I know everything Mm -hmm. whereas now I feel much more like you know I'm so happy to kind of really have a chat with um, you know the in-house people or whoever it is and really collaborate with them on kind of creating a system design that helps realise things. I think in terms of yeah, sound effects and stuff. Um, I really shy away generally from uh, naturalism a lot. Mm-hmm. I think it's not. It's generally not how what I find interesting to put on stage is kind of like um, a really unexamined form of naturalism in terms of sound effects and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so often I end up approaching them in a bit more compositional way, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, uh or you know, sometimes if that's sort of project really needs because I haven't I don't I haven't really done sound design on musicals because I a lot of the sound design on big musicals is a bit more sound effect and system design in a way that's not necessarily as interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Um and I just know there are people who will do a better more, you know, better job really. Mm-hmm. Um whereas you know, I'm also really, you know, it's something I haven't really quite found, but I'm really keen to kind of find um, sound designers who maybe are slightly more coming from that direction, who I could collaborate with on projects. Um, I, haven't, I haven't really quite found anyone who I've really, where there's really been a kind of uh, constructive collaboration that way, because mm-hmm. I think it can get quite complicated mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're dividing a role that is really blurry. Um, But it's something that I'm definitely interested in.
0: So through all those different forms of uh, collaboration that you've just mentioned, are you starting to create new projects out of that uh, and working with people more regularly at the moment?
1: Yeah, um, I'm always kind of, you know, excited by new collaborations. Um, And I feel like sometimes they can kind of sneak up on you Mm. a bit. So one person I'm working with quite a lot at the minute is an artist called Hester Stefan Chillingworth, who they are kind of performance artists. They also make stuff and direct and write sometimes. They do like a a huge amount of things. And we kind of, um, I got them, I I kind of asked them to help. I found their stuff and I was was looking for other people who are non-binary to work on a specific... um, Piece. This piece I'd written, actually, I was getting some actors into a room and I just wanted someone else there who had more directing experience to help me shape that room. And I saw their stuff and uh, was like, yeah, they're someone I want to work with. Mm. And we end up after that just hanging out a lot as friends. We And we're having a lot of chats around um, various things in our lives. And we kind of have this idea like, oh feel like we could work together you know for something and we did this residency together and we ended up kind of really like making this show (laughs) in like three days and you know very much not a finished show but yeah um what we would thought was just be us kind of sitting around and chatting a bit about some ideas that would maybe affect our individual practices turned into this this really rich collaboration that we're something that we're we've continued to develop um that very much kind of came from, I suppose, our position in the world as we have quite a similar relationship to our gender identity. Um, And I think that probably affected it. And, um, yeah, that's kind of become quite central in the work. And, yeah, this is a piece where I'm kind of performing and writing and Mm. playing music and doing sound stuff. And it's really, it's been really, really surprising, but really fun to just kind of... I guess going in with no expectations and then have this collaboration come up that's really like, wow, okay, it feels really exciting.
0: So is your non-binary nature and queer identity an important part of your practice now?
1: I think it is and it isn't. It is in the sense of, I think, you know... um, it's affected who I am and how I think about things in the world and how I move through the world and therefore it kind of comes into everything I do, I suppose. Um, But I think... I often find the kind of... um, way identity politics is kind of leveraged um, in the arts to be quite uninteresting and I definitely don't feel like... I feel like I'm more interested in my queerness... Um, as a verb than an adjective, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So in terms of, like, how it presents and in terms of how I do things. I think um, I've definitely had experiences where, especially slightly earlier on when I started out, and I think the landscape is very much changing, um, and I'm really excited by how much more diversity there is in terms of... um, Younger sound designers and composers who I see coming up, Um, but certainly when I first started trying to pursue work doing that um, it really wasn't very diverse um, and I was very much in a gender minority just by virtue of not being um, a man. Um, and I definitely had experiences where I felt like people were approaching me for work because they felt like I ticked a certain box mm-hmm. around gender or around queerness. Um, and that I really, really dislike because it, it ends up you end up feeling a bit like you're interested in me as in terms of my identity in a kind of two-dimensional way rather than as me as an actual artist and a mm-hmm. human. And I kind of stand by that in that I think that the most important thing when you're looking for collaborators is to find people who you respect artistically and gel with in that way. Um, At the same time, it obviously is important for people to kind of have an eye on making sure that there's diversity of voices within their teams. But I think that should come from a place of of wanting individual voices that are different um, to be speaking about something, Mm. to be into the conversation rather than trying to get a group photo that looks um, l- looks better.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, it, so she, I mean, is, is that... Did you find a way of kind of, I guess... For want of a better expression, squaring that circle around feeling okay with chosen for projects and and being clear enough in your own mind about whether that was a, about gender identity politics or whether it was about the value your value as an artist, because that's something as as a kind of privileged white middle aged man who's a sound designer that I'm I'm slightly fascinated about about like how does one how does one um, navigate that conversation in your head about what is my validity in the room? There was a conversation in an article in The Stage a little while ago talking about women's role in theatre and about that always being placed at the centre of this person's conversation they had with any position they were put into. And, and yeah, I think it's... Did you find a way of kind of navigating that satisfactorily or do you just kind of plough ahead now or is it much more about a broad picture of what that organisation or that company is doing at that particular point?
1: Yeah, I mean, I actually think that you can really pick up a lot on instinct, actually. It's really, it's one of those kind of secret languages that no one really understands. But if you're in a position of being a kind of um, minority, I think you can tell so instantly if someone is approaching you because they're genuinely interested in you, Hmm. or if they're approaching you because... um, they need someone in their team who is queer or they Mm -hmm. need someone in their team who is trans or is, you know, whatever. Not a man, you know. Um, uh, And, you know, I'm also white, but I've heard the same from uh, designers and other artists from the global majority who, you know, they're like, yeah, I can tell absolutely instantly. Um, And... I think very much if I if I sense that there was definitely a time where I would maybe sense that and then go oh but maybe this is a cool project or whatever whatever, um, and there's a balance when you're first starting out and you're kind of looking for work I suppose but now I'm very, if I sense that at all I I very much I'm just not interested in in pursuing that work because I just I just feel like I won't really feel free. And also I, i'm I'm not really interested in trying to speak for um, for queer people or something. I think you know i'm I'm really interested in making work there's nothing to do with um, with queerness or with gender as well as even though within my own work that does kind of come up yeah. a lot um, there was, <laughs> there' was definitely a time at, at one point where. I just kept being asked to kind of work on shows around, like, sexual assault. And I was like, hmm. I can tell that I'm just being asked this um, because uh, <laughs> you're looking at me and saying, well, statistically, you're likely to have been a victim of sexual right. assault, which is, I think, really kind of encapsulates the issue because it's so so problematic in so many ways, where, first of all, it's dehumanising because you're being objectified as um, a kind of an identity or whatever. But similarly, you're also being asked to put labour into kind of discussing something which has, which maybe is something that you already like. I, I'm kind of interested in like seeing straight people making shows about queerness, or you know, cis men making shows about sexual assault. Like people who could have needed to be thinking about that. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense, isn't too controversial to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, the thing that I find challenging and and I think this is coming to play much more over the last 12 or 18 months is organisations who are trying to increase representations in teams Mm. with people that they ask to work and and to collaborate that. And I I agree, sometimes it feels like there's a real clumsiness to that and that can drive people away from wanting to be part of it. But also, there's a part of me that goes that... Those bandwagons need to be kind of jumped on and 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 worked with, even if they're clumsily put together, in order to change the landscape. And that's a thing that I find kind of tricky and difficult to navigate because sometimes it's really clumsy. Sometimes um, I think post pandemic some theaters have come back and made have have made it in one singular hit. And then felt like that's that's kind of offset the balance throughout the rest of the work that they're doing, and and they can return. And I think that in it, clearly that in itself feels clumsy. But it's for me, it's much more about a, what is your broader overarching consideration of representation throughout a period of time, a group of people, as a as a producer or, or as work. But it's I think it's it, it's really hard when people are. are are seemingly trying to change the way that they're doing things.
1: I think that's the thing, and it's something that I'm very aware of myself as well, of like, I will in one, on one side, kind of criticise tokenism, and then the other side, I will also criticise, if I can see organisations or individuals who really um, aren't making any effort to kind of diversify their collaborators. But more because I think that probably means they're not making very interesting art, I think. I mean I think the the key really is people should need to be doing it in a non-tokenistic way. Mm. And what that requires is labour and time.
0: Yeah.
1: Because it means really researching it's kind of like if you're coming up with a list of set designers who you might want to work with, really researching a huge number of people and finding people you know finding people who you because if you if you actually do your research, you will and you come up with a list of ten designers who you find exciting there will be people in that list who are a global majority. From the global majority, there will be people who are queer, who are trans, because there's there's loads of amazing artists um, from those groups around. And I think it's about being rigorous and being honest. And, you know, I, I think it's there's so much value in constantly trying to kind of really... Uh, Research and find out about new artists and what different people are doing, and new people to work with. Mm. Similarly, there's also a lot of value in um, repeated collaborations, and I also think it's important for people to be able to collaborate with who they want to collaborate with. Like, I also get sometimes where someone will work with the same, you know, if I work with the same director ten times, mm. we can make really really exciting stuff because there's a shorthand and we know each other. Um, at the same time people you know I think just for the sake of making good stuff <laughs> should be just constantly kind of checking out new people Yeah. Um, and obviously you'll know that as a teacher like how many exciting new voices kind of come true yeah, yeah. and you just want you probably just want the world to know like oh there's this is really exciting um, uh, new young artists kind of coming up and there's you know living in London like there's constantly there's so much flow from all over the world of people as well Mm. um there's so much opportunity to really find exciting collaborators and I think yeah you just need to really be rigorous and make sure you're not being tokenistic in terms of how you approach um approach recruitment I suppose yeah
0: Yeah, I mean, for my money, it should be be part of an NPO's portfolio bids to the way that they engage people and they don't allow people to um, be the same teams that they've worked with before. I mean, I worked with the director many years ago, many, many years ago before this was a conversation who would always have at least one new person on their team, on Mm. their design team, each time they made a show. Just mm-hmm. to force their hand in freshness and 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 in new ideas, and I think mm. that's you know that there's there's now is the there's more of a call of that for, than ever before. Yeah, and so it, it, on your website, I was reading it talks a little bit about the research work you, that you do. How does that fold into your practice?
1: Yeah, so um, I think the, it's really one and the same. I think in lots of ways, I think my research interests have very much come from things that I've just found myself um, interested in, (laughs) essentially. (laughs) I guess what is research, but thinking about things I'm interested in and reading about them and Mm. talking about them and stuff. Um, And, you know, there was, for example, there was, like, a point at which I was... There's a kind of a researcher that I have a close relationship with, who um, she's a neuroethicist um, in a medical setting actually. In the US, um, met in a university class that was all around uh, the semiotics of sound in film actually, and we've just continued really thinking about that kind of stuff. But there was a point where we were doing research around um, headphone space and kind of vulnerability um and gender and what that space is when people move through the world and what that space is as represented in film and in other places and it was coinciding with the time where I was making a lot of headphone based work mm. and I don't really know which came first <laughs> <laughs> um but one was really feeding the other right. and it also meant that when i was working on other people's projects i was going did you know that you can also you could also use headphones you know? <laughs> and it was kind of it was kind of making its way into like my designs as well as my uh, my own projects and stuff and i think that happens i find that happens a lot i'll decide i'm really getting really interested in writing um, vocal music and suddenly i'll find so I'm suggesting that for every show I'm working yeah. on, but it feels <laughs> it, f- it feels true every time, and then I'm like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> but I think um, yeah, I think the research and you know, I really I, I kind of love reading and I love, uh, <laughs> of sitting and thinking. Um, <laughs> I'm a really fun person, um, but um, <laughs> uh, I, I find that stuff really feeds me. So it's a, it's a way yeah. of working that I. I really I really like to do and I find it does impact my practice a lot. Some people really hate that shit, so and I get that as well. But um yeah, it's it's an area that I I really uh I really find feeds me.
0: In terms of the headphone shows, then, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you've made there in a theatrical sense?
1: Yeah, I um Started off. It was when I was at Central. I really, really got into headphone stuff. I had a real like phase with it, and I um, saw some amazing like binaural uh, stuff. And obviously, binaural technology it's been around since like the eighties, but it suddenly was becoming much more um, in people in the general general public consciousness. Mm around the last 10 years and i was really into like asmr on youtube and stuff these these kind of like things and i was like just like really fascinated by like the kind of space that took me to and the feeling and the kind of weird dynamic as a performance dynamic like what is that you Mm. know um and i ended up making uh i made this one show that kind of had like two different forms where one at one point it was kind of in a theatre with um, kind of end-on, with every audience member wearing headphones, and I was kind of in it but very much just sitting wearing binaural earphones. And then it took another form where it was kind of around a table in a bar and everyone was wearing headphones, um, and I was working with a binaural head. Um, and I think what really, <laughs> what kind of like drove me a lot in that as well was this discovery I made around at that time anyway, the kind of commercially available binaural heads not only cost, um, you know, a huge amount of money, mm. but also all the kind of research that had gone into creating the kind of average um, head and ear shape and size and structure, because which affects our hearing in this massive way, all the research had been done basically around, like, white men. Um, and I was so outraged at this <laughs> because there's, there's real kind of differences, there's real physiological differences according to, like, sex and stuff um, and, you know, that affect bone structure and affect the way that we hear and listen. Yeah. And I kind of went down this rabbit hole and I was like, oh, and the MP3, of course, that was kind of chosen as a format just by panels of kind of one demographic. Um, so this one demographic of being, like, massively catered for. Um, and so I, I ended up kind of making this binaural head... Very cheaply and very um, DIY, um, using casts of my own ears and a kind of cosmetics head, and some um, cheap binaural microphones. I'm my microphones and um, kind of performing with that, right. which was kind of a statement. And end up, uh, I made another piece where people were kind of. Um, it was recordings made with that and it was about, it was actually around the time of, um, there was a referendum in Ireland around uh, repeating the Eighth Amendment, which was about making abortion legal. Mm-hmm. And it's about experiences of baby, uh, about, of mothers, basically, um, and of being in the womb um, and choice and stuff. Um, and in that, people wearing headphones and they were kind of intense, um kind of curled up in tents <laughs> um and uh yeah so yeah i suppose i'm interested in that as you know and also i've made stuff which is like people like talk more like kind of walking towards that people walk through mm. walk around and you're listening to something um uh i think it's a really really interesting space and i think it's really there's so much that it says around how we interact with society and what society we live in the way that different kinds of people use the kind of private in public space that headphones provide Mm -hmm. um i'm getting interested again now i'm talking about it um but yeah i I had i had a really i kind of really deep dived into that and was doing all this research and stuff as well um around it um yeah
0: and in terms of uh, either those projects or other projects you've worked on, what are the ones that you found the most challenging?
1: Um, I think for me, when I think about what makes a project challenging, um, I actually mostly think about like things to do with working conditions and resources rather than artistic right. stakes. Um. And the projects I think of, I'm like, that was really challenging. It's always because of there being not enough money, not enough time, Mm. pressures from kind of buildings or marketing teams or funders um, and that kind of thing. And often that, often the pressure that there is, you know, obviously kind of falls down the chain and ends up on on the backs of, freelance creatives. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, I've had some really serious situations that have, you know, where there's been real kind of people on teams of real stress-related trips to hospital and and stuff and, you know, people not being, you know, the difference from if you're a freelancer and you might not get allocated breaks in the same way that Mm. union staff will... And there's generally about five people or something like that on a project who are in this position and they, yeah, you can really, really get taken for a ride mm-hmm. and it can have really, really serious effects on your health and on your ability to do a job and it can feel really unsustainable. And that's the kind of stuff I think about when I can name somebody I don't want to necessarily yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know because the the fact is is that um there's never there's never like someone being bad because i actually think almost everyone working in this industry is like doing it um doing their best really and working in like really hard conditions including the people who have salaries including the people who you know are artistic directors under so much pressure um to deliver and to kind of catered towards people with such limited resources and i really really feel for everyone in the food chain mm. <laughs> um but at the same time it's also really hard it can be really really hard seeing how different you can be treated as a freelancer compared to um a union or in-house staff mm. um but yeah i i would never want to there's no individuals who I'd ever want to kind of incriminate in that sense. But I think that those are the things that I find really challenging about the work I do.
0: And do you think part of the reason that you don't necessarily find the work itself challenging is that you're quite careful about curating the things that you choose to be involved with from the material?
1: Yes, I think so. Um, I, yes, I think that's definitely something that, Probably if you'd spoken to me a few years ago, I might have had quite a different answer, actually, now I think about it, where I was very much indiscriminately taking any piece of work um, and maybe coming up against kind of, yeah, artistic clashes (laughs) Mm. (laughs) or hierarchies, you know, structures of working artistically that you don't agree with or don't find creative. Um, Whereas now I do very much... I'm very careful to also lay out what I will offer to a project to make sure that I'm not signing up to something where there where someone else would be um, do a better job or I'm not be, going to be able to give, especially if, if there is a, a hierarchy in it. I'll go well. This is what I will offer.
0: And do you mean that in a practical sense, or
1: yeah, I mean a practical sense in terms of the kind of jobs I will or won't do in a project. Yeah. Um. So yeah, talking about before, say some of the more Technical things, so with mixing radio mics. I'm mm-hmm. not going to do that during tech. I'm going to be on Q Lab. I'm not yeah. going to do both. Um, or if it's a film project, I'm not going to um, do the live recording of the audio because it's not something I really know yeah. how to do very well. Um, I'm being really clear about what I can and can't do, but also just in terms of like how I would appra- if I read a script or I think about an idea, how I- what. I think very much about, like, how is this going to... If it's not my project, I'm like, okay, it needs to also... I've, I've learned that because I can't help getting quite invested often, I need to be able to find a way into that material in that it will feed me, either through exploring a part of my practice that I'm interested in. So that could be, um, you know, writing live choral arrangements or it could be using binaural technology. Um, and that could be a kind of real motivator... Or it could be just in terms of a certain aesthetic or style or a way of approaching the material that that feels resonant to me and feels true. Um, so I am much more. I think it's as much about me kind of trying to have those initial conversations, get an idea of whether it's a project that um, I will be able to approach with integrity um, and also being really honest with potential collaborators about what I how I will approach it so that they can make a decision about what's best. Hmm. And so this is in terms of, you know, when I'm kind of going into a space with a hierarchy where um, I'm not going to have the final say on something. And this is also coming from a place where I'm, I'm more in a position now than I was five years ago to be able to turn down work. Hmm. Um, so that definitely comes with, you know, I wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't, if I'd always done that I probably wouldn't have been able to um, become full-time freelance when I could yeah
0: and and as a, a it, it feels like what you're saying there and my observation of where you are is you're kind of a, a, a mid-stage career now like you've come through the the initial emergencies, you're quite established as an artist you work in really mm-hmm. interesting fields what are the most valuable things that you've learned over that that kind of beginning section of your career what would you say to other people in those places
1: I think um, a really big thing is around ego actually (laughs) around um, which is maybe a life thing as well as a design thing but I think learning to kind of leave in any collaborative setting essentially um, learning to leave your ego behind as much as you can. Um, and it's about listening, and really listening to what something needs, what a, what a piece needs from you um, in order to say what it's trying to say. Um, is such a valuable thing. And I think there's a real temptation when you're first starting out to like be proving yourself in every project mm-hmm. and to be like you know filling it with kind of luscious elaborate underscore and crazy soundscapes and you know expensive technologies or whatever the thing is that kind of uh, you feel excited by and I think you can really really hear that in work Um, and it's really it's, it's, it's about two things and one thing is is about um, the way in which you work because I think if you spend like 20 hours creating a really beautiful intricate elaborate composition and you're working in a process where the director can go ah I don't think it's quite right I think we might have no sound here then you're it's really really hard not to feel a massive kind of injury <laughs> to yeah. the self with that, and also to be like fuck I've just spent loads of time that I could have done something else with um, on doing this so it's about creating a way of working in which you're maybe minimising the risk of having you know having that happen but also um so you know creating work that compositions that are a bit more flexible for example um but it's also about uh be trying to be really radically honest with yourself um in any collaborative setting about what the piece needs and not what you want to kind of put forward of yourself um I think that's a really important thing and something that really um uh can be really really challenging and still it's <laughs> you know i think i you know i'd be lying if i said I, I never had that battle anymore but that's definitely something i um think was a really important part of my development in terms of theatre especially
0: I think one finds that a lot with visual artists as well. The later they get on the career, yeah. the simpler their work becomes. Because initially, it feels like you need to make a statement about who you are and your full capability. Mm. And then, actually, once you've made a bit of a name for yourself, you can start and lean off slightly and give a little bit more space. But it feels a very, um, it feels a very, um, what's the right phrase that I'm looking for? It's kind of it's very high stakes to go in minimally right at the beginning with something because it mm. that could feel like there's not you haven't got enough ideas mm. rather than that you're being sparing
1: <laughs> yeah exactly and the thing is I think I definitely I know that most of the work I get now it's to do with um I get the most of my work from uh I think who I am in a room yeah even more so than the stuff I create and you know, not to like (laughs) downplay what I create because I think I do, you know, I don't have a style and it's kind of like, that's what I'm going to do for you. So you either want that, you don't want that kind of thing. But I think the collaborations that have really lasted for me are ones where I feel, you know, where where I've gone, I'm just going to this room and really listening and whether that means you can be in the room for three weeks solidly in rehearsals and then there can be, you know, just a tiny, mm. <laughs> a tiny drone under one scene or whatever, you know. Um, that can be what the piece needs. And you maybe you wouldn't have known that if you hadn't been in rehearsals at that time. Mm. And, you know, the team will know that it's not about... I think the, pro- the thing is, to be honest, as a sound designer, composer in theatre, the fact is you, you do have to get used to the fact that a lot of people won't notice and won't be thinking about your work at all when mm. they watch and listen to a piece of theatre. And you have to be quietly in the knowledge, you know, you know how much <laughs> how much work you've done or how much you've put into it or how much you've added. But I think you have to really kind of accept that that's not going to be... You can't really be in it for the, the glory in that sense, mm. in, a, in a wider sense. Um, I think you will always be... You know, it's really hard to avoid getting really burnt out working in theatre because you don't get paid enough. Mm. Um, And I I left school at the beginning of austerity. (laughs) And, you know, funding has continually been slashed since 2008 Mm. and living costs have just been going up and up. And it's become harder and harder and harder to kind of make a living as anything let alone as an artist Um, and there's just no point in doing it there's things you can do where you get paid much more or are much easier and cost you much less emotionally um, uh, to, to live so I am much more selective now and I have other work that I do that I've really chosen to kind of train in like I also do hair um, yeah. I cut hair, so <laughs> um, and I've chosen to kind of have that skill and to train in that, so that I really have something else that I can do if I feel like I'm burning out artistically. Because I know for myself, there's been periods where I've been doing so much work for kind of other people's and other people's babies, essentially. Yeah. That I've I've been kind of exhausted. Um, I have no time for my own things and also not artistically fulfilled and still kind of skint. So it's like, it's just not worth it. Mm. Um, So I think kind of, for me, trying to be really selective about what I do and don't do and really um, making sure that if I agree to do a project, um, there's something in it for me as well as, for the person who's hiring me, mm-hmm. unless they're offering me, like, loads of money. <laughs> <laughs> Which case, I'll probably do anything. But, like, <laughs> that doesn't really happen in, in theatres. So, um, yeah, that's something that I... Because I think I definitely came really close to going, no, I'm not going to do any design anymore All after right. even a few years because I really... Uh, I was working a huge, huge, huge amount and it wasn't working. Um, and then when, you know... During the pandemic, when work was really really sparse, there was like one little window where, I, uh, where theaters were open over the kind of main period of lockdowns, so and I, it was there was like one, and I suddenly was like, I know exactly what I want to do, like I know what I need to do as an artist, and I was like, I'm just gonna do that because I think everyone on that project was basically coming from the same place of being like yeah, we just really need to do something because we feel so sad and not be able to have done the thing that we we want to do. Mm -hmm. So we're all kind of really, everyone kind of went so far into that, you know, um, and actually what we made, like, I think it's one of the best shows I've ever worked on, really. Um...
0: So you've talked a lot about um, practice, which is a, a quite academic language, which you know I'm quite used to. And a couple of people that have uh, been in the podcast series have talked about that. But what do you mean by that? And and you you talk about your own practice and and collaborating with other people. How you know how do those things differentiate from themselves? And what do you mean by practice?
1: I think I think it means a lot of different things. Actually, I think there's really like two two parts for me, and I think there's different. At different times, I'm really fed by different parts. So there's my own practice, which is the stuff that feeds me and is kind of coming from a place of, like, you know, why does anyone make art? Like, who knows? But needing to say something and needing to listen to something, needing to kind of put something into the world.
0: Hmm.
1: And I'm really of the view that, like, everyone should be... Do- like, every human should be <laughs> doing that, should have, their- should have a practice, should have something artistic. Like, it's so fundamentally... I think, such a human way of coping with existence, actually, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, that I think everyone should be making stuff. And then then, then the part of me that is, like, has skills that I enjoy using, (laughs) like, writing music, because I have my own music that I write for myself, which is mine, and I also have music I write, which is, like, I can write in different styles and I can do that because I have this training that I've put years of practice into. <laughs> um, and similar sound design kind of thing with certain elements of it where it's like I can I can use these skills and I can be generously helping facilitate someone else saying the thing that they need to say. Um, and I think there's an interesting kind of, you know, it's a split between it's the kind of designer versus artist thing, mm-hmm. which... Um, there's people who come, I think especially within the field of sound, who come from such radically different ends of it because you have people really coming from music, people really coming from a technical background and people who get fed in different ways, you know, and I know for myself, like, sometimes I really feel like I just want to be able to kind of give <laughs> give myself to someone and I, I feel that generosity and other times I don't and I feel more like, you know, for me a real, like... <laughs> A real trigger point is if, if I kind of like go on theatre Twitter and find myself feeling like envious of other, other practitioners, other designers, mm. you know, you see those. I think everyone, well, I like to think hopefully everyone gets this in some way, sometime where you see show announcements or whatever and you feel like, oh, I wish I was doing that job. Um, if I start getting that feeling, for me it's a kind of a sign that I'm not feeding myself... Artistically enough that maybe I need to take a little bit of a step back and actually focus a little bit more on what I want to be doing, Mm -hmm. and maybe sometimes that means trying, trying desperately to find some time to put a bit more time into my own, my own self-led projects where I have that real, real sense of agency. Um, And for people that's different, you know, for some people that could be like, yeah, you know, like slowly, slowly making a kind of ten-minute soundscape that you're going to put on Bandcamp in 10 years time and like that's that that's and you know and, you know you're not going to try and publicize and that's fine and that that can be what it is I think for other people it can be um it needs to be a bit more central you know um but I think finding a way I think for me it's it's actually really about finding a way through being a professional like I kind of hate the professionalism of art of art, (laughs) I think that's actually quite like a damaging thing culturally that's gone on. Um, That I think once your practice gets tied to money and to um, making money out of it, you are so complicit within this really, really ugly, boring, evil capitalist system. (laughs) Sounds kind of like... um, Exaggerated, but it's just true. Like it's really, really hard to, you know, you're not going to be making anything that's true or interesting. Like there's always something that's going to be taken away from that, and it and the fact is is that we have to because it's really, like, it's really hard to live in this world because we do live in high capitalism, so we need to make loads of money in order to live. So we do have to find a balance, Mm. but it's like about carving out space and time where you're able as much as possible to like step away from that from the thing that's like the competitiveness or the the thing that fuels kind of envy and jealousy and a feeling of wanting to put down other artists or put down other, be better than, you know, or be the best. that mm. Those kind of feelings for me are a real sign that I need to like basically try and step away from certain ideas around kind of career and professionalism with my practice and... Mm into a space that feels more like I'm getting back to the core of why I'm doing it and why I need to do it. Uh,
0: So is there anything that you would um, recommend to those at the earlier point in their career?
1: I think another thing I would definitely say is don't work for free. Hmm. The only time you should be not getting paid is if it's your own project. If it's your own practice, if it's your own art, then I think it's very reasonable to not to to do that without getting paid. Um, and you will have to. Um, but I think if it feels like work and if you're using your skills to basically help serve someone else's baby, someone else's project, um, you need to be getting paid. and that's for yourself because you won't be valued if you, mm do loads of work for free but it's also for the industry because it's just not fair on people who aren't able to do that um and that's something i feel quite strongly about and i get really angry both at people who are asking people to work for free but also at people who take those jobs sometimes because um yeah it it really means that only certain kinds of people can build up cvs in the Mm -hmm. industry if that becomes the norm
0: Thank you very much for speaking to us, Anna Clock. Thank you. This podcast was produced and edited by Peter Rice, a sound designer, educator, and member of the Association of Sound Designers Board. This series is kindly supported by the Association of Sound Designers, the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama and the National Theatre Sound Department.